This afternoon, we'll deal with the truth of God's Word as confessed in Lord's Day 45, which speaks about prayer. And in connection with that, let us read two passages from the New Testament. First of all, from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, the verses 5 to 15. And then we'll go to Luke chapter 18, the verses 1 to 14. So we begin with the Word of God in Matthew 6 at verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in their synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's now listen to what we also confess about prayer in Lord's Day 45. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give His grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask Him for these gifts and thank Him for them. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only, who has revealed himself in his word for all that he has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, we must rest on this firm foundation that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? All the things we need for body and soul as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord himself taught us. And the next question and answer then also has the Lord's Prayer as we just read it in our reading from Matthew chapter 6. After the sermon, let us sing together from Psalm 34, the stanzas 2, 6, and 7. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know very well that for various relationships to flourish, be it in a marriage relationship, be it in a family relationship, you work or with friends, then there must be good communication. Now we speak of good because it is not only necessary that there is communication, but also that we do it in the right way. After all, it is possible that in a marriage or in a family, there is a lot of communication going on, but if you analyze it, the communication amounts to yelling at each other and using harsh words spoken in anger. Well, that is as destructive as when all involved, you could say, never speak to each other. might even be more destructive. Now, this is also the case when it comes to our relationship with our God. You know, we describe this relationship, because the Scripture does, with the word covenant. We are covenanted together. And we know this is a relationship that God has graciously established. You could say He began it formally with, with Abraham and all his descendants. We are part of that covenant. And in that relationship, God communicates he speaks to us, and He does it in a very good way. He has given us His holy word. In that word, we learn who our God is. We learn all that He has done for us and saving us from our sins. We learn how He is looking after us. All kinds of things which God communicates about Himself to us through His word. And we also learn from that word how He wants us to live. And in this word, he also tells us that he, as he speaks to us, he wants us to speak to him. And this is the activity that we call prayer. Now, 
it's good from time to time to reflect on our communication with God, our, our prayer life. For we not only should reflect on the fact that we should communicate, but also how to communicate. After all, as was mentioned earlier, there can be a lot of communication in a relationship, but it is destructive rather than constructive. So we could be thinking, well, I speak to God a lot in prayer, but actually we're making the relationship worse if we're speaking in a way that we shouldn't be speaking at all. And therefore this afternoon, we're going to pay attention to the matter of prayer, and we'll do that under the theme of seeking the Lord in prayer. And we're going to pay attention also, kind of pointed in that direction by our catechism, to the why, the how, and the what of prayer. So the theme is seeking the Lord in prayer. And we begin with the why of prayer. That why does indeed need attention. Because if we become more and more familiar with the Word of God and we listen to His Word, then that why could arise because we think, now, God is all-powerful. God knows all things. He even knows our thoughts before we think it. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He controls all things. You can even think bigger. Everything happens according to His eternal plan. Well, we know God is in control. His sovereign grace in saving sinners. And so, like the question that is asked, if we are saved by grace alone without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? We can also ask the question, well, if salvation is 100% the work of God according to His eternal plan, why must we pray? Surely, everything has been decided. Surely, we can't change God's purpose, so, so why bother? But the answer actually is quite simple. Because the same God who has revealed Himself as the sovereign God, who has revealed His plan of election, has also said in that same word to us that He wants us to pray to Him. If anything, if you want to look at overall emphasis, you could say, there is more emphasis on His insistence that we as His children pray to Him than passages that speak about His sovereign election and His control of all things. So, when we think about why should we pray when God is sovereign, it's the sovereign God who says, I want you to pray to me. That's part of that same revelation. Now, where do we find that? It's just kind of good to think through a few passages where that also is impressed upon us. Well, we can think of how the Lord God spoke to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, and when He had revealed His name, you might recall, of course, even to Moses. When Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? to the people, then the Lord says, I am who I am, comes up in the Hebrew name Yahweh, which we translate as the Lord. Now, when the Lord revealed that name, He did that because He wanted His people to use that name to speak to Him, to address Him. It's reflected, you could say, in a second, first of all, in a negative way in the third commandment, we shall not use the name of the Lord our God in vain. You can use it wrongly. But the positive side of that is that the use of His name is to, is to be central in when we speak to Him. We use the name, you could say, to 
call God to attention to the fact that now we like to address Him as He has commanded us. That's a privilege. We know His name. We don't just say, I think there is a God up there. Who is it? No, He has given us the name by which to address Him. Now, this whole idea of addressing God, speaking to Him, we think of the many Psalms that speak about the fact that it is good to give thanks to God, to praise Him. The Psalms, which also, as they call for praise, which is a form of prayer, also are filled with all kinds of petitions. The psalmist might be in great trouble. He might have a heavy heart, all kinds of difficulties, and he lays these things before the Lord, and he knows the name by which to address the Lord. So it's very clear. In the Old Testament, the Lord wanted His people to speak to Him, and He showed how personal that was by also giving them His personal name, the name Yahweh, the Lord. You could say that was the climax of the Old Testament revelation of God Himself, of course, developing further in the New Testament to knowing that we are to speak to God the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Apostle Paul, he also stresses this when he writes to the Thessalonians. He concludes his letter with a bunch of short exhortations, and he says, chapter 5, that we are to pray without ceasing and to give thanks always. So there are those exhortations to pray. And we think also of the many examples throughout the Scriptures of God's children praying, and the Lord also listening. You know, you think of Isaac and Rebekah. For some 25 years they had been married, had been no children yet, and then Isaac prayed to the Lord, and the Lord heard, and she became pregnant. Hannah, she loved to have a child, while Peninnah had so many. She prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered her prayer. I think also of Paul praying for his own needs and for the needs of the churches, and we think even of our Savior. You think the last person who has to pray is our Savior. Yet, how often do we not see our Savior portrayed for us in the Gospels as finding a quiet place to pray to His heavenly Father? It's interesting in that respect, Hebrews 13 verse 15 describes prayer as a sacrifice of praise. So we're not, not sacrificing animals, but our prayers, they are like sacrifices. So when our minds then try to play clever games to talk us out of praying, let us remember how the Lord has told us to pray, and that is what believers have been doing throughout history. The church, really, is the praying community. And if we think it's not really necessary. Well, then actually we disconnect ourselves from the church. And, and we kind of think they always did their breath. We kind of disconnect ourselves from that church of all ages. We, we take our voice out of that choir, you could say, that is praying to God, always praising Him. The prayers that go up without ceasing. It's, it's just it's kind of woven into who the church is, the praying community, because the Lord God has required that. Now, there's a second aspect to be considered under the why, and the second aspect also may run up against what Scripture teaches about God's sovereign power. But the second aspect is, as the Catechism puts it, 
that God will only give His grace and Holy Spirit to those who ask and thank God. Now, as the devil is stirring up the, but how can that be? If God is sovereign, you know, we think all of a sudden God seems to become dependent upon us. Well, then again, we simply think of how the Lord God answered prayer. We gave the example of Isaac praying for Rebekah. She conceived. Hannah conceiving after prayer. Hezekiah being healed after he pleaded with the Lord. How the Lord Jesus also said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Or we think of that parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18 that we read together to impress upon the disciples to pray and not lose heart as that judge gave in and finally answered that, that persistent widow, well, our Heavenly Father certainly will listen to the pleas of His children. And so, brothers and sisters, indeed, at times we get too smart for our own good. We simply have to listen to God's Word. And we simply need to look to the parable, to the parade of praying saints and rather than just argue, just join in. Because praying is what saints do. Praying is the God-decreed way of opening the channels of His grace, His blessings. And as for God's sovereign plan, well, it is the same sovereign God who tells us to pray. And when He does that, He is indicating to us that Prayers are all part of His plan, all parts of His purpose, and He is pleased to fulfill that plan and purpose in response to our prayers. Now we turn to our second point, the how of prayer. Now that word how was chosen to capture what is expressed in question and answer 117, because the question there puts it in terms of what belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him. As you look at that answer, then you'll notice that the what does not refer to the content of prayer, but more, you could say, it deals with our general attitude, our way of approaching our Heavenly Father. So, how do we go about a God-pleasing prayer? We can bring it down to three things. We need to be God-conscious, self-conscious, and Christ-conscious. Let's just work through each of those three things in order. It may always, almost seem a bit silly to say we have to be God-conscious in our prayer. In terms of praying to the one true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. But some reflection, however, will make, it, make us realize that it is no luxury to pay some attention to this aspect of being God-conscious. Because first of all, there is the sad reality, evidenced also in history, that, that prayer was no longer directed at God, but became directed at people who had died, but who in the minds of some others then were considered very holy. You know, we think here of the practice, very prevalent already in the time of the Reformation, still prevalent among the Roman Catholics to this day, for example, of praying to Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, or to one of the apostles or some other great figure in church history. Now, this may seem kind of remote to us, 
as people who have grown up in a Reformed faith. But it is a reality we need to be aware of. And there may come a situation where we interact with someone from that background, and then we have something very concrete to talk about, to say, well, in your prayers, are you speaking to God? Why not? Why are you praying to people who are dead, who can't help you anyway? And they may think, yes, but I'm so engaged in prayer. I pray through the rosary every day and so many Hail Marys. It's a waste of breath. So we have to be able to speak about this and to be able to redirect people to the right address in prayer. Now, okay, that may be something we have to know in case we get involved in a conversation like that, and let's hope that we have a gentle way of speaking about that. But closer to home, there can be confusion in how to deal with the fact that when we pray as New Testament church to the triune God. Now, you might have come across people who, who come across as very sincere and quite knowledgeable in many ways as in their understanding of Scripture, but when you listen to them pray, actually, they're praying to Jesus. They might even be very comfortable and casual about it, even in the sense of, hey, Jesus, we just want to speak to you. Now, there will be a time in our prayers that we can indeed address the Lord Jesus, but to be true to Scripture, we need to remember that the Lord Jesus is not the primary person to address in our prayer, even if you listen to our Lord Jesus Christ. When He taught His disciples to pray, He didn't say, when you pray, pray to Me. He says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Notice, our Father. He, as New Testament church, our address is to the Father. And we know, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is critical in this because He is the mediator, and we go to the Father through Him. But the Lord Jesus Christ, He opened the way for us to the Father, and He says, I reconcile you to the Father so you may speak to Him directly. In that respect, you could say it is as wrong to always pray to Jesus as it would be wrong to pray always to Mary and the saints because that's the, not really the address. Jesus Himself said, call upon your Father. Do it in my name, but call upon your Father. Now, there's a third consideration when it comes to, which comes out in answer 117, when it says that our prayer must be from the heart. Well, this points, of course, to, in the first place, you could say sincerity in prayer, but it also brings out another aspect, and that is that we must be very much alert in prayer in terms of what we are saying. You know, for the sincere part, we can think, for example, of Psalm 50, where the Lord is said to admonish those who recite His law and take, their, take His covenant upon their lips, but who live wicked lives. If, if we call upon the Lord, but our lives, to use the image from this morning, is not in the way of the Spirit, that's not sincere prayer. That's not prayer from the heart. The Lord will say, there's a disconnect between you calling upon me and the way you live. You don't care about me at all. Why should I listen to you? That's the sincere part, but also we mentioned the alert part. This has to do with the fact that, that we should be mentally fully engaged in what we are talking about and not be like those who, who heap 
words upon words and phrase upon phrase, and they think they will be heard because of their flowery words or because they have repeated a certain prayer a hundred times. You know, here we think of the practice already prevalent when the catechism is written. It is still a practice that is found in circles, same circles, where they pray what they call that rosary, which is actually a necklace with a whole bunch of beads, and every tenth bead you have a bigger bead, so you can start praying the same prayer over again, and you kind of move them around so you don't lose track. Like saying a prayer a hundred times is going to make God listen all the more. And people can even do that absent-mindedly. You just kind of, by rote, that's where the rote comes in. You just do it automatically. No longer fully mentally engaged in who you're speaking to and what you are doing. That's not God-conscious prayer. That is treating it like a magic formula, as if God can be forced to listen to prayers because you've said it so many times. So, first of all then, God-pleasing prayer has to be God-conscious, a very conscious, a very alert way, sincere way of speaking to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second aspect we said, you have to be self-conscious. Now, here we think of that parable of the tax collector we read about in Luke 18, who humbly said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's all he said, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He didn't even dare to look up. No, he was aware of his sins. I think also in this respect of Psalm 34, we'll sing a few stanzas after the sermon, which speaks of, of the Lord being near to the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. That is the person who, who knows him or herself to be really unworthy before God. Indeed, that sense of personal unworthiness has to be there, that awareness of our original sin as well as our actual sins. You know, this, this humbleness of heart is well reflected in the way that in the Scriptures, when we read about people praying, they, they would often kind of just fall on their knees, make their head touch the ground. It's interesting, you know, we still, if you watch sometimes the way that the Muslims pray on their little carpets, that is actually a sign of humility. We might question all the things they do and who they pray to, but the way that they pray in a way reflects the way that Old Testament people would have prayed. Humility. When you stand before God, actually you don't stand before God. You humble yourself. Of course, there were other prayer postures as well. For example, that they would stand with uplifted hands like that. You know, if we tried to pray like that, we probably wouldn't last more than two minutes because the arms get kind of heavy. But again, that is also an indication of, of reaching out to God with empty hands, asking Him to fill us. So, a position of dependence. Our particular practice, when we, when we fold our hands and we bow our head, we close our eyes, well, you could say that is kind of a, a practice that has developed in Western European setting. It's not found everywhere in the world, but again, when we properly do that, that's also why I think parents try to teach their children that way. It is a sign of humility, a sign of dependence. So, while there are, of course, different ways of showing that humility, it has to be expressed in some way, because it is far different to come like that, saying, I am not worthy, Lord, rather than to go to the Lord with that brazen look in one's eyes, even a sense of arrogance in our voice, 
like that self-righteous Pharisee who was laying before the Lord a list, long list of good things that he had done. But the Lord Jesus said, the tax collector who humbled himself, he went home justified, not that arrogant braggart of a Pharisee. Now at the same time, as there has to be this God-consciousness, self-consciousness, also it's not complete unless there is a Christ-consciousness. Because you could say that when we go and pray, we, we should not treat it like some kind of spiritual insurance policy where we think, well, if it won't help, it won't hurt me either. That's not the attitude of prayer. No, we go in the confidence of faith. And while we recognize there is personal unworthiness, we do find our comfort in Christ's worthiness. We know that He has paid for all our sins. That's why the Lord Jesus also, when He taught His disciples, for example, in John 14 and 16, He says, well, when you ask the Father, ask in My name to show that you are connected with Me, you trust in Me, that you seek forgiveness in My sacrifice, and you can be sure your prayers will be heard. You know, we, we express that, actually, usually in the way that we might finish our prayers after we make various petitions, we offer our praise, we might finish with a phrase like, all this we ask, not because we are worthy, but only because of the worthiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or more simply, we ask this for Jesus' sake, or in Jesus' name. Note well then, this God, self, and Christ consciousness. It's important, it's essential. Before we even get into the content of what we are going to pray about. But these areas, these three areas, they do need our constant attention. After all, our prayer is, is a frequent activity, and you know that the more frequently you do something, just think how many times in a day do you pray? Five, six, seven times? The more frequently you do something, then the danger is there that you go on what we could call autopilot. The moment we, we fold our hands and close our eyes, okay, we're just kicked into prayer mode. And it almost seems that we don't even have to think anymore because now we've clicked into that particular mode. But you know, it is easy, even though we don't want to. Even we, we have the best intention to pay careful attention to this aspect that no sooner have you folded your hands and closed your eyes that that you begin to drift. Just like, just like when you're driving in the car and you see what's on the side of the road, your car always pulls in the direction that you're going. Well, when you close your eyes and all of a sudden your mind begins to drift in a different direction than really you intended to. Because really, who has not experienced it at some point, brothers and sisters, that maybe it is time for mealtime prayer and you're not the one praying, but you're listening. Or it is time for congregational prayer that that the voice of the one praying kind of begins to fade towards the background. Congregational prayer. It might even happen if the minister prays a bit on the long side. That, that, you know, you close your eyes after listening to a sermon for half an hour, you're kind of sleepy, and before you know it, you kind of drift off, and all of a sudden the minister says, Amen, and maybe you didn't even catch it. 
Maybe somebody has to give you a poke because you you didn't intend to, but you tend to drift. The danger is always there. It can even happen to the person leading prayer, that he or she kicks into autopilot with words beginning to flow steadily, and all of a sudden the one praying begins to realize, I don't even make any sense anymore. I don't even know what I'm talking about. And maybe the rest of the family is also zoned out. They didn't even notice because we have so many platitudes, so many pat phrases. Now, an autopilot, you know, the the prayer might fly for a while, but eventually it's got to crash land. But it certainly will not land with God. So, if our prayer is going to be meaningful communication with our God, we may have to do some practical things, like even to give attention, you could say, to our bodily posture. Mention was made in Bible times how people would fall on their knees. It wasn't uncommon, even a hundred years ago, that people would, would actually pray. You maybe have seen sometimes pictures, you know, of an older gentleman kneeling beside a chair with a Bible on the chair. Why did he do that? Well, it was a sign of humility and also a way of paying attention the way children, many, some ten decades ago, would have been taught to pray kneeling by the bed. Somehow you stop doing that when you get older, but that posture, that posture puts you into prayer mode, but also in a mode that makes you aware of what you are doing. It's interesting, you know, that in some traditions, they even would have kneeling benches in church. So by the time it came to praying in church, the benches would come down, and the congregation would kneel on those benches. Again, a position of that would make you alert to what you are doing, to a degree uncomfortable, so it will help you keep away and stay focused. You mentioned earlier the practice of praying with your hands in the air. Can you imagine if as congregation we would do that from this point on? You would expect your minister to pray like that. You would all stand up, all lift up your hands. The minister probably would pray a lot shorter, and we would all stay awake because you're not going to fall asleep doing that, but it makes you alert to what you are doing. Now, one more thing can be mentioned, namely an instruction of our Lord about prayer in Matthew 6, when He says, don't pray like the hypocrites who made a big show out of it. But He said, go into your room and shut the door and pray in secret. You know, the older expression, you might have come across that, that spoke about going into the inner closet. And we may kind of wonder, what was going on here? What does this instruction mean? Well, you have to keep in mind that throughout most of history, pretty well up to the late Middle Ages, the common way of praying was to pray out loud. See, if you pray out loud, you're not going to drift as quick as if you're praying just in your mind. It's interesting. Only about 1400, 1500, the people began to pray in their head, quietly. So, when the Lord Jesus then says, well, go into the inner room, go away from where people are, where no one can hear you. Not like the Pharisees who even made the point of standing on the street corners to get an audience. The Lord Jesus said, no, you don't need an audience. The only one who has to hear your prayer is God. So, Find a quiet space where no one can hear you. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ would go away from His disciples, find a quiet space so He could speak to His Father in heaven. Again, the whole posture also is a way of staying focused on what you are doing. And so as we conclude, the how of prayer 
Let us remember to be God-conscious, self-conscious, and Christ-conscious. And this calls for putting our mind in high gear as we speak to our God, and it also perhaps calls for taking practical measures to help ourselves to stay focused like that. And so we come to our last point, the what of prayer. Now here we do indeed talk about the contents. As we turn to the what, it's important to highlight that we should listen to the Lord our God as to what He says we should ask of Him. Notice, He tells us what to pray for. We may have our, may have our ideas, we may have our wish list, but we have to be careful because our ideas, our wish list, our things, our idea of what we like, what we need, are not necessarily God's teaching us as to what we need. Just like anything else, it can be that we become quite selfish in our desires, in our prayers. And as was already expressed in Answer 117, we should ask for what God has commanded us to pray. Now, when we do that, then we quickly discover that, that the Lord is not stingy. He doesn't give us a very short list. No, Catechism captures this when it says, we are to ask for all the things we need for a body and soul. All the things we need, not want, we need. You know, the Lord made that clear in the Old Testament time as well. He says, in my name, I want you to come to me with all the needs of your life. Don't go to the bales when you want supper on your table. You come to me. I am the God who controls the skies, who makes the crops grow. You come to me when you need protection from your enemies. And when you need forgiveness, you come to me. And when you need healing, you come to me. We think of the situation as happened with King Ahaziah, who had fallen through the lattice, who had injured his legs. And then he sent messengers to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. And then Elijah had to interrupt those messengers and basically said, well, what do you think you're doing? Don't go to Beelzebub for information about your healing. You should come to me. And because King Ahaziah would not look to the Lord, he was not healed. Simple as that. Now, as we speak of the what of prayer we come to what we call also the Lord's Prayer. It's always good to keep in mind that the Lord Jesus introduced this prayer by saying, pray in this manner, pray like this. You know, when he said in this manner, that's quite important because that brings out that the Lord Jesus didn't say, well, pray exactly like this every time you pray and that's the extent of what you pray for. No, he, he, he gave basically an outline. We could even say a sample prayer. And you know the way the catechism also develops these, these petitions, that makes, it, makes us realize that, that each of those petitions becomes a category, just like each commandment is a category, becomes a category of sins related to it. When you look at the petitions, it opens up all kinds of avenues to preach, pray about this, to pray about that, you know, all kinds of things that can be included under those different headings. But we realize see, that the Lord's Prayer indeed addresses all our needs for a body and soul. 
may be brief, but it's comprehensive. It opens the door to all kind of matters. Now, the key point to note in all this is also how we are taught what to pray about. We need guidance from the Lord in these matters too. And as we think of the Lord's Prayer, we just read it again, you know, then we could see various items that we would have thought of too. We say, yeah, sure, we would have prayed for our daily food. We would have prayed about dealing with temptations. But you know, it doesn't take too much to figure out that there are things in there that we would easily have overlooked. Some things might never even have crossed our mind because on our own, would we ever have thought of starting our prayer with, hallowed be your name? Does that seem like the first thing on our mind? It should be, we know now, but would we have thought of that? So in that way, our Lord, by giving us this model prayer, this sample prayer, not merely gave us prayer points, but he also taught us prayer priorities. Now at this point then, it should be clear that we are to seek the Lord in prayer. It's the proper response to His grace, to Him revealing Himself through His Holy Word, Him talking to us. It's essential for our relationship with Him to be healthy and strong, to truly be a relationship. And you know, bad, sloppy habits, they easily develop. Not that we intend to, but, but they do. They develop. And reflecting on the why of prayer then should give us also a renewed purpose in praying without ceasing. And also enable us to focus all the more as we think about prayer, to focus on being God-conscious, self-conscious, and Christ-conscious. For in the end, it shows us the beauty of our relationship with our God, that He who speaks to us wants us to speak to Him in prayer. Amen.